Welcome to Element, where we're just a little awkward sometimes. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. So you don't have to shut it off, but download an app called Uversion, and in Uversion you click on Live, it'll bring us up by GPS. You will get the sermon notes, uh, you'll get the verses, you'll get uh, some of the questions as well that are on the sheets. Let you guys just know a couple things before we get started. Uh, the first one is Friday night. We we do these things throughout the summer, like every other week, called film and theology, where we watch a movie and we kind of talk about it. Uh, we we don't. It's not like we're pirating the movies. It's 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 okay. We actually have a license to show some of these movies, and this we're going to show Iron Man. The good one, not like the one that was... Maybe you like the second one, I don't know. All right, but we'll show the first one, the good one. Uh, it starts at 6 o'clock. You're, you're, if you get off work at like 5, 5.30, you can grab your meal, bring it with you. It's, it's okay, you can eat in here. We're not all, oh my goodness, you're eating in here. We, we eat in here all week long. That's why the floor looks the way it does. So, so you know that. Uh, we also have a, a youth snack bar where they're raising money to go to camp, so you can buy like candy and stuff from them. I'll tell you, this is really funny. Uh, and James isn't here. He's going to be here tonight, and I'm going to tell him about this because he needs to fix this. So I go back, and I, and I buy some Milk Duds because it's like cookies and Milk Duds are both sent from heaven. It's like the glory of God has rained down and given us these wonderful gifts. And so I go back, and I, and I buy some Milk Duds, and I go to... I must be in his office for a while. It got really warm or something because I open the box. It's like, boom. I didn't have, like, Milk Duds. I had a Milk Dud, all right? I had, I had one. I ate it anyway, you know, because it is still milk duds, so, you know, it's, it's how it works. But they have a used snack bar. You can come and, and do that as well. Uh, the second thing is this. We are, uh, we, we did this financial class last year called Financial Peace University. Anybody go to that? All right. Now, leave your hand up. Leave your hand up if you went. Leave your hand up. All right. Now, if you went to that and you thought it was good to go to, go like this. All right. Leave your hand up. Leave your hand up. Now. If you think, you don't have to keep going like this though. All right. If, if you went to it and you think anybody under 30 years of age has to go to this thing, raise your other hand and go like this. All right. We are going to do FPU again. After I took this class, I was thinking, man, I wish I would have learned this before I got married because I wouldn't be in half the crisis that I am all the time. Uh, so starting at the end of August, we're, we're trying to figure out what day of the week to do it uh, the best. Uh, we're going to have a sign-up next week, but we're going to do FPU again. We're going to do it so, it's, so it stops right the week before Thanksgiving. All right? So it's, the, the, the course costs 96 bucks. Uh, that if you save 13 bucks a week, uh, you'll have enough by the time the course starts. If you paid for it already, you are a member lifetime. You can go any place, uh, anywhere in the United States that, that offers this course. You can go to it for free because you already paid for it once, and that's kind of how it works. The money does not come to us. It goes to the organization who puts it out, and you get like a workbook and a book and, and all kinds of different things. So it's not like, hey, give us your 96 bucks and... You know, thank you. you know, it's, it's, it actually goes towards some things. And we would encourage all of you guys to go to FPU because in the financial state that our economy is in, it's really good stuff to know and live. That's right. From the gallery right there. Be, if you don't make back 96 bucks by the end of the class, there's something wrong with you. You buy some milk duds that aren't stuck together. Why don't you guys stand there? You're reading to God's Word. See, Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 31 to 33, and it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand what mutual love and respect looks like, that we would be able to walk into the places that you have called us to as your people, so that you are glorified and your people receive much joy. Amen. Have a seat.
So we are walking through the 3,000-year-old book of the Song of Solomon. Now, last week, we did baptisms. If you missed it, I'll, I'll show you some pictures of, of baptisms. <laughs> Creepy, right? And here's, here's another one. <laughs> I, someone said to me, I was like, awesome. So th- this is basically what it looked like, okay? So at one point, there's about 225 people that, that came. So awesome. If you missed it, bummer. It was a great tri-tip, by the way. Uh, and at one point, there were 57 people in that pool. So... Nice, nice. So someone at baptisms, as I'm walking around, they, they, they said, why are we going through the Song of Solomon? Why do we do this? Great, great question. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because God intends for His people to live on mission. Meaning, if you're a believer, if, whatever job you work, wherever neighborhood you live in, your home, your friends, you are a missionary to that culture. And that doesn't mean you stand on your desk at work and be like, repent, evildoers. That's, that's not what that means. It means you live your life in such a way that Christ is seen by how you live and love those around you. That's what it means. You are to live the gospel in your life. And so as we talk about the Song of Solomon, part of the reason we do this is that we are to help you to learn how to apply the gospel to your life, how it looks when you actually live it so that when people ask about it, then you can actually explain the gospel with intelligent words. Part of what we're going to do this morning by the time we get to the end is we're going to kind of explain the gospel in terms of the Song of Solomon. Hopefully it will make a lot of sense to you by the time we get to the end of it. But this is the idea. We want you guys living for and on mission because it's what God calls us to as His people. Now, uh, Song of Solomon talks about love and sex and wisdom and hope and marriage and redemption. We must be a people who understand that, that all these were gifts given to us by God, especially sex, to be freely engaged in in marriage. Last week we talked about sex and communication in marriage. And people asked, and after that, well, what about kids? And I say, well, that's how you get kids. I mean, what are you, what are you asking? That's, that's, that, that's the question. They say, no, no, when should we have the talk? Well, okay, the talk. I'll tell you first, if you cannot talk to your husband or wife about sex, how are you ever going to talk to your kids about it? You need to be able to talk to each other about it in a positive light. So talk to each other. And then when should you talk to kids? Well, I would say you start the conversation because it should be many conversations. I, I would recommend you start the conversation at age 10. Not like all the intricates and ins and outs of it, right? But you start the conversation at age 10 if they haven't asked already. And, and never tell kids about storks. You should never be embarrassed about how God has designed procreation. You simply talk about it. And again, you don't have the talk. You have talks, many of them. It never stops. Why should you start by age 10? Because according to statistics, the average child sees their first, has their first encounter with pornography on the Internet by age 11 today. You do not want that to be their first experience. You need to be talking to your kids. The Washington Post had an article, uh, September 16, 2005. If you go to our website, ourelement.org, forward slash SOS for Song of Solomon, we have the link to it so you can read the full article. But this is what the article states. Half of all teens have had oral sex. There are Christian couples who will not talk about this, are really embarrassed by it, <clears throat> and yet their kids are actually doing it. This says, slightly more than half of American teenagers ages 15 to 19 have engaged in oral sex with females and males reporting similar levels of experience, according to the most comprehensive national survey of sexual behaviors ever released by the federal government. Now, when the kids get to 18 and 19, that proportion raises to 70%. Now, there are several leaders of youth organizations who are totally blown away and surprised by the statistics. 
Uh, Jennifer Manlove, not making the name up, by the way, Jennifer Manlove, uh, she directs fertility research for uh, child trends. She says, you assume that females are more likely to give and more male, males more likely to receive. We were surprised that the percentages were similar. There's actually today slightly more girls having intercourse before they turn 20. In addition, national data indicates that a portion of high school girls who have one-night stands or non-romantic sexual relationships now equals, if not surpasses, boys. James Wagner, who's the president for Advocates for Youth, says this is a point of major social transition. And the data underscores the fact that many kids today do not view oral sex as sex. That's not as significant as their parents once thought it was. Claire Brendis, who's a professor for pediatrics at the University of California in San Francisco, she says oral sex is now far less intimate than intercourse. It's a different kind of relationship. At 50%, we are talking about a major social norm. It's part of kids' lives. This is why it's important when you talk to kids, you don't just say be a virgin, don't have sex. You've got to talk about what a virgin actually is. There are too many Christian girls wearing promise rings, having oral sex, not realizing that it actually counts. And single people always ask this question. They say, well, where is the line? Give me the line. Where is that at? Paul in the book of Ephesians says there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. That's way farther back than any of us will actually like to admit. Because God's intention is not that you and I would find out where the line is and walk right as close to sin as possible without touching it. It's that we would live in freedom. We would be people who live in hope and joy and faith and goodness and grace because we live in freedom. And what that means is there isn't sexual relationships apart from marriage and then marriage and then complete freedom. Complete how, how much? Freedom. Complete freedom. There, there, there you go. Anyone who asks where the line is, they want to know how they can act like they're married without being married and not sin. Where's the line? Well, it's way back there. You better back up a whole lot because you just ran past it. When they say the word a hint of sexual immorality, the word sexual immorality is a word that covers a whole range of sexual sins. It's a general word. Other places in Scripture it uses specific words. Here it's a general thing. Why? Because we're so messed up that if we got a complete list, we would find a new category. We'd make up a new thing and go, oh, well, we didn't talk about this one. Right? We'd be like, oh, Oh, he didn't talk about uh, downloading videos of girls dressed up like Lord of the Rings, wearing tiaras and mud and, and half-naked doing Indian wrestling. Oh, he didn't talk about that in the scriptures. Oh, that one must be okay because it's not in there. We're so messed up that we think of something that's just not in there. Uh, Mark Driscoll says this. He says, the question is not where is the line. The question is when is the time. I don't know if he meant to rhyme that or not, but it kind of rhymes. But, 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 that, but that's true. The question is when is the time. Let me give you some statistics. Uh, from the last 30 years, 1978 to 2008, people living together has risen 500%. Over 90% of Americans will marry. 40% of those will end in divorce. 60% of divorces involve children. One-third of births today are to single women. A quarter of single women ages 25 to 39 are cohabitating with somebody else. Uh, half of all women do so at some point. Half of all marriages are preceded by people living together. People 20 to 24 years of age are most likely to cohabitate, and those who do have a 75% higher chance of divorce. Now, the big lie of Satan is that live together, you'll see if you're right for each other, but I will tell you, there is no preparation for covenant. Cohabitation is not preparation for covenant. Two people sharing two lives, living, sharing one bed is not one flesh. It's totally different. People who live together before they get married have three times more, like, three times more likely to suffer from depression. Cohabitating women are 200% more likely to be beaten and sexually assaulted than married women. Cohabitating women are nine times more likely to be murdered by their partner than married women, statistically speaking. 
and contrast that. Virgins who get married are less likely to divorce. 37% for men, 24% for women. And virgins who get married stay married and are happier and actually enjoy more sex. This is the thing. The bottom line, Satan is still a liar and God still tells the truth. No matter how many times we think he doesn't, he tells the truth. And God is not trying to keep anyone from pleasure. He actually wants us to compel us towards pleasure so you can have maximum pleasure and joy. God's like, no, do it like this because you'll really enjoy it. This is how I want you to do it. God's good. He wants good things for his kids. And Satan is a liar. And every time we follow him, our lives end up being destroyed. And this is important for what we talk about today. You must trust God. You must trust Him in how He calls us to do things. Uh, much of this could actually be canceling in my office today. Just listen to what I'm saying, then you have to come to my office and me yell at you for an hour because that's what we're doing. This is a series of love songs, again, between a man and a woman. If you have a Bible, open to Song of Songs, chapter 2. That's where we're starting. Again, the book is not in chronological order. The songs are all over the place much of the time. In today's text, they're preparing for some time together. They're preparing for a, their, their wedding. And the woman speaks. Chapter 2, verse 8 is where we start. And it says this, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. She's like, he is a stud. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Now, it's not like, oh, is he a peeping Tom? Is he a stalker? What's this guy like? No, uh, again, this is, he's going to her house. He shows up before their marriage. In the days when these lines are written, people are often married as teenagers. And so these can actually be like high school kids. They're, they're just kids, which explains the our wall part. She's still living at home. She's under her parents' roof. She's living with her brothers and her sisters, probably her extended family. Throughout the book, her father is never mentioned, so she's probably raised by a single mom and her brothers. And so she sees him coming. And what's he doing? He's bounding. He's, he's running. That's, that's a motivated guy right there. He's like, hello. And then her heart is all a pitter-patter. She's like, oh. It's, that's my girl. That's a... Uh, I don't know, whatever, okay. But her life is safe. It's very predictable. Her family provides for her. Her brothers protect her. But the guy has an invitation. It's an invitation to marriage. This is an invitation. Verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He's inviting her to a new life. Marry me. We will go away together. It's a life with him. He continues, for behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Now, think back, ladies, when, when the guy, if you're married, the guy that proposed to you, how did he propose? Did he do it like that? Was he like, the turtle doves are singing in the land, and, and the trees are blooming, and marry me? No? He's like, I got a ring. When, when I proposed to my wife, it was on a 4th of July, like 18 years ago. It was at Pismo Beach uh, after the fireworks show. And I got down on, on my knees. I said hands and knees first, or just my knees. Okay, I got down on my knees. And I didn't realize I was so close to the tides, right? I'm all, I'm all well, you, whoosh. well, that stinks, you know. And then, will you marry me? And she said, she said yes. So she says yes. And then we're like, so what do we do? Let's go get pie. So we went and got pie. But it's... <laughs> It, it wasn't like this. It, was, it wasn't so romantic. But he, just, he reminds her, hey, it's that time of year. It's wonderful. It's new, new life and new growth and the, everything's sprouting and budding and blooming. It's, he points to the explosion of spring going on around him. He says, this could be us. This could be us. Verse 13, the fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love. Again, that's his nickname for her. My beautiful one and come away. There's so much adventure and possibility. Come with me. 
Come with me. Verse 14, she says, O my dove, in the cleft of the rocks and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. She says, I love his voice, I love his presence. And then she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And this is mutual belonging and ownership. Now we're going to go. With this where I said we're going to talk about salvation in reference to this and what this is all supposed to look like. You have a Bible open to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to try and put this all together for you this morning. I'm going to get pretty serious here, so just go with me with that. Mutual belonging and ownership is the essence of a Christian marriage. If one person gives themselves and the other does not, it will become an abusive relationship. If one person serves, is considerate, doesn't withhold their life, and the other does, the other person only takes, it will become an abusive relationship. A biblical relationship is meant to be two people who give because our God is a giver. Now, a lot of relationships aren't there, but that is the intent of where they are supposed to go. Uh, to be in a Christian relationship means that we give. Husbands, this means you give yourself to and for your bride just like Christ does for the church. All your money, all your life, all your time, everything goes to her, and eventually that comes back and reciprocated. It is not one person taking, it is two people giving. And so Scripture teaches, and we're going to look through this, that the man is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And like and this causes a lot of uproar in people. We're going to explain what this all means to you this morning. So in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 17, We'll do this all in context. It says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, Wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now the teaching in the passage in Ephesians is first about loving and serving people around you, especially in your most important relationship, the one with your spouse. You place the other person's needs ahead of your own out of respect and reverence for Christ who gave his life for us, the ultimate act of love and sacrifice. This passage is written to a church, to a group of people. So there are many people being addressed by these words. And so the church is being taught how to live together in such a way that when people observe their lives, they will see what Jesus is like. Again, just like we talked about, living on mission and community together. And it's amazing the uproar a little word like submit, six letters, causes in our culture. In the Greek text, the wife isn't commanded to do anything different from what everybody was commanded to do in the previous verse, namely submitting, placing the needs of others ahead of your own, especially in her most significant relationship, the one with her husband. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. First off, head is not boss. Guys, you don't get to boss your wife around. It's not like, hey, woman, make me a sandwich. You know, oh, I didn't like this one. Make me something else. It's not employer, employee. It means like Christ. That's what it means, that Jesus has a bride called the church and a husband has a bride called his wife. Husbands are to treat their bride like Christ treats the church. What does that mean? 
That means at the very least, men, you should be pursuing your wives. Scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running away from him, giving him the finger, he came and sought us and died for us. What it also tells you in Scripture is that we love because he first loved us. He is the one who went first and extended himself for us. Jesus doesn't sit back and wait for us. He tracks us down. You don't find God. Jesus comes and he finds you. He pursues us. He pursues a relationship. So a husband in a marriage must be relentlessly committed to a relationship with his wife. Men, this means in many situations you will always go first in repentance and reconciliation. If there's work to be done, you go first because you're to be like Jesus. The point is the husband is supposed to be like Christ. And what does that look like? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Christ's headship comes from giving himself up for the church. It is his sacrifice and his surrender, his willingness to give himself away for her, his death, his ultimate resurrection. The authority that the word head carries is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ and therefore the sacrifice of the husband. The husband is commanded to lay down his life for his wife and the wife is commanded to submit herself to the husband. The both are commanded to submit to each other because everyone is commanded to submit to everyone else and all of this is out of reverence for Christ. Whew, tongue twister, right? Following, right? You got it? We good? Is this on? Yeah, okay, good. All right, all right. Thank you. One person. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Too many people come, they take the verses like in Ephesians and they blame one another why their marriages don't work. Oh, you're not doing it like this. That is not what the text is about. A husband waiting for a wife to submit is actually a failure on his part to lead. If he leads, that means he surrenders to his selfish desires and his wants and his plans. He would die to his need to be in control and do whatever it takes to serve her, to present her without spot or blemish or wrinkle. A husband would die to himself so his wife could live. And sometimes what that means, guys, is you have to step into some difficult situations where it's like, well, she'll get mad if I say this. Well, sometimes you better step in and let her get mad because you are called to serve her even though you might die. (laughs) You are called to serve and love her. He would lay down his life for her like Jesus laid down his life for the church. And this is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the question then becomes, how does a woman respond to it or crystal clear to her that her husband was placing all of uh, his needs behind hers, that all of hers were ahead of his? What if the husband then had a habit of doing this? What if the bride knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that her husband's love for her was so great that he would lay down his life in the blink of an eye for her? I mean, what, what would that do to her? She'd be like, my husband loves me. Now, when you relate this to salvation, a lot of people think this is like cheap grace. Uh, like Jesus, he pursues us and loves us and redeems us and, and runs after us as our great God, bringing his children home. And he lays down his life for us just like this. And I'll tell you, the more that I understand Christ's love for me, the more humble I become, the more I long to serve him because I realize what he has done for me. Grace is not cheap. It costs Jesus' life. And that is nothing that's cheap. It is free because we can never afford it because it's priceless. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, she speaks of this paradox. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. That's Ephesians 5. It's two things going on. She gives herself away. She's letting go. She loses herself in her lover. At the same time, she gets something in return, the other person. 
who at the same time has let go and given himself to her. And there is something about losing yourself in this other person that defies our ability to categorize. Healthy marriages have this sense of mutual abandon to each other. Both people jump into the arms of the other person, mutual abandon. If one holds back, if one refrains, then it doesn't work. And it becomes abuse of the service of marriage. It is to be, my beloved is mine, and I am his. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's answering a whole lot of questions as the Corinthians church asks him. And one of them is in regard to intimacy in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and 4, Paul says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there's the thing. Well, which is it? Whose body is it? Well, the answer is it's both. It's both of theirs. Whose has the authority? Well, well, both. It's my beloved is mine, and I am his. In Ephesians chapter 5, when it tells the husband to love your wife as Christ loved the church, the word they use there is the word agape. Last week we talked about the different types of love in the Hebrew text in the Song of Solomon. Well, the word agape comes from the word ahava that we talked about last week. And in the New Testament, agape is used in a context of God's love for his people. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. What the text tells you is that a man is to love a woman, to agape her like God agapes the world. And what does that look like? Well, it's a particular kind of love. Agape doesn't love somebody because they're worthy. Agape makes them worthy by the strength and the power of its love. Agape doesn't love somebody because they're beautiful. It loves in such a way that it makes them beautiful. Because there's like a love that's because of, oh, you do this, so then I'll love you. Or there's a love that's in order to, well, I'll love you if you do this. There's love for the purpose of that, and then there's just love, period. And that's agape. That is love, period. does need a reason. The goal of a husband is to be like Jesus so his wife can trust him and feel safe with him, to build intimacy around his Christ-likeness. And too many men have taken verses like in Ephesians and turned it into I am boss and she is property. Too many stupid people trying to ridicule Christianity have taken these verses out of context, say, oh, Christianity is barbaric, when these verses are about oneness and coming together and mutually submitting and understanding how to give to the other person like Christ gives to the church. Anything other than that is misuse and abuse because it's nothing like Jesus treats the church. Stupid men sometimes do not know how to give to the wife as Christ does to the church. And this is why we talk to you about the Song of Solomon. Because guys, many times we're stupid. We're like, what am I doing? We don't know. And that's why we go through the Song of Solomon. It's about education. The Song of Solomon, she does not say, I am his, period. She doesn't say, he gets to take what he wants. It doesn't say, she gets to take what she wants. It says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He gave himself first to me, just like Jesus gave himself first to us. He gave his life, his money, the husband gives his time, all that he is. Ladies, I, I hammer on the guys a lot this morning, but I got, I got one thing to say to you. Too many of you go first all the time, all the time, and you don't need to. You're like, oh, I love you. Oh, I'll move in. Oh, I'll let you have me. No. Make him go first. Get you a ring. Ask you to marry him. Get a date. Actually get married. Love you. That is why she says, my beloved is mine, because he went first, and I am his. Then she gives her whole self to him, and that's biblical marriage. And then after this, the woman becomes passionate and free and creative because she can trust her guy. 
Now, I give you a question to ask each other every week during the Song of Solomon. So this week, here is my question. If you're married, ask your spouse this on the, on the way home today. Say, how do you see me giving to you? Let them answer how they see you giving. And then you can explain how you think you give, but you need to hear how they see you giving to them. So ask them that question. If, if you are single, uh, go out with some of your friends and ask your friends, how do you see me giving and loving the world around me like Christ calls me to? Because sometimes you think you're really giving and you're not doing anything and your friends are like, dude, you don't give anywhere. You don't do anything. You know? So just let, let them know. I mean, honest questions. And so we can know how to better live, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Because really, what if we treated each other as if they were the person we wish they were? What if we agape people the way God agapes us, even with all of our flaws? If you're another person on the other side of this love, is it more motivating to be reminded of all your failures and all of your faults? Or is it more motivating to be reminded that you are loved as a man or a woman the way that you are and that God came and lived and died and rose for you? She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And then she says, he grazes among the lilies. In chapter 5, verse 13, his lips are called the lilies. Uh, the Hebrew for this literally means to feed upon. So what it is, is it's, it's this she understands that his love for her is great. They're, they're getting married. And so he, she says, make out with me, baby. It's great. Let, let's, let's make out. And he's like, okay. You know, really excited to do that. And this is actually even related to chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And then this section ends like this. Verse 17 uh, in Song of Solomon chapter 2. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Now the day breathing, this is in contrast to the night. So night was representation of the present world. The day breathing was the world to come. And this could be the line at the end of a Hollywood movie because what she essentially says is, until the end of time, we will be together. It's like... Oh, that's so nice. It's so wonderful. And she says, Be like a gazelle or young stag on cleft mountains, so you be strong and you be swift. This is a couple who truly live. My beloved is mine and I am his. See, Solomon was a guy. He had a lot of wisdom given to him by God. And I think he's able to love like this before his life goes off the rails because he understood God's love, God's ahava, his for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He understood that, as we are also supposed to understand that my beloved is mine and I am his. I mean, in a scriptural context for us as God's people, again, these are the two things that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went first. We love because he first loved us. He went first. This is a beautiful picture of salvation from the Song of Solomon. And we are to live this in our lives and our marriages and all of our relationships that we come into. This morning, we're bringing you guys to communion. What, we, what I want to do is I want to try and reinforce this in you, this great love of God. So when you take communion this morning, as you break that cracker and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, you remember His body broken for us and His blood shed for you and I because He went first to redeem us and save us and bring us home. The band's going to come up. There are a couple songs uh, about humility, about who God is and calls us to places of humility so that we are people who actually live that. There will be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, maybe you're in a relationship right now and you feel like uh, you are giving and giving and giving and the other person, maybe you're here alone 
and, and you're here because you're learning how to give and maybe they're not, go and pray with them so they can actually pray with you. If you're a couple who's maybe struggling with this together, go and pray with them so they can pray with you. If you do not know Jesus, pray with them so you can understand this whole idea that God has given himself to us and that we in turn live our lives offering everything back to him because he went first. There are offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. It's in the scriptures, so we give you that opportunity every single week. Uh, there is not tri-tip in the back like there was last week for baptisms, but there is some food in the back, and you're more than welcome to, to have that. There's coffee and stuff. And hopefully in this, uh, you will meet somebody else. Maybe you don't have any friends to ask these questions to. Well, first off, you can sign up for one of the gospel communities. We'll plug you in to some people who would love to get to know you, and you can be part of their family. But, but if not, if you're like, I don't want to sign up for anything, meet somebody in the back. Invite somebody out to lunch. Maybe sit down and make some friends. Because throughout the scriptures, we are never meant to do this life alone. Our marriages were meant to also be lived in community with other people. The privacy of the two people, but also the community that comes around and helps us to live what we are called to live. Your relationship with God is you and God, but it was never meant to stay like that. It was meant to be you and others moving forward on the road that God calls us to. So we fully understand, I am my beloved's. I am. He is, my, he is mine. I am his. That's how it all works. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that we as your people would understand the great depth and love that you have offered to us as your people, that you have first given to us, that all the way back from the beginning of the book of Genesis, your kids keep running away, and yet you keep seeking them out, grabbing them and loving them and drawing them home. And so I ask that we as a people who you have first given yourself to would then, now, with your strength, be able to live and love the the grace that you have so graciously given to us by giving to other people as well. That we would now extend ourselves first, never expecting to get anything in return, but simply giving and loving as you have given and loved us. We ask that we would be those who bow our hearts and and bend our knees as you make us the humble people that we are supposed to be and that we trust you with all of our lives because you have loved us first. And we ask that our response would be truly loving you in return by all that we say, by all that we do, and our marriages, and all of our lives. Thank you for being a God who seeks us and redeems us. Amen.